Welcome to Culture Bites, where we take culture theory and turn it into everyday insights. We're powered by Human Synergistics, and our mission is to change the world one organization at a time. We can only do that together with our amazing community, so thank you for listening. Hey, Liana. Hey, Dom. So on the last episode, we were talking about coaching questions that you could ask people when they're struggling to connect with a style that might be in their LSI profile. So they might not quite understand what it means for them or how it's showing up or understanding their thinking around that. And we went through the, the passive defensive styles. This week, what I'd really like to do and what we promised on the last show was to go through the aggressive defensive styles as well. So if we recap a bit, this is really about people that they're, they're not feeling that feedback and they might not quite understand it. So why would we kind of, why do you suggest asking questions rather than just explaining to them what that style means? Well, you've got a couple of options when you're going through a debrief to prompt someone's thinking. You, know, you can use all the resources available to you, but I often find that a powerful question gets people thinking more personally about how it shows up for them. The question is, can often be more powerful and lingering for an individual. Uh-huh. And, you know, we know the kind of concepts of adult learning that this inquiry and discovery model, asking questions for individuals to explore for themselves, tends to end up with them being more attached to whatever it is that they land on. Right, because they come up with it, they answer it for themselves rather yeah. than just being told. And that's true of everything, right? I think we all do that when it's when you're told from the outside, even if you know it's right, you don't feel that same kind of ownership or connection of it. Yep, 100%. <laughs> so on that note, we finished off last time with the passive defensive styles. And we're talking about coaching questions you could ask people in those styles. So if we pick it up this week, if we keep kind of going around the circumplex with the oppositional style. So <laughs> starting strong this morning. <laughs> yeah, well, straight into it. <laughs> Can I talk first? I yeah, go. Talk, I want to talk first at the cluster level. Okay. And I will go into oppositional because it's not a bad place to start. I often find there's a pattern with the strong task, if we use pure defensive, that there's a pace. There's Uh a pace behind what we're here to do and getting to an action. And so I'm finding that more and more when I'm working, particularly with leaders that have reinforced these styles over many years, how to slow it down a little bit to connect more with what this pace is Uh actually you know, how it's showing up for them, if you like. Because underneath the pace, or if you like, how that manifests is speed, is quick answers, is task, task, task. And one of the things I'm trying to get people who are heavy on task to move towards is how do you interrupt that pace to do things like check in with the broader context, with the goal, what's the implication of this decision? So some of the things I'm actually trying to do is getting them to slow down a little bit. So is that, because, you know, I could say if I was on that style, I'd be like, wow, I'm just getting stuff done. Yeah. Right? What's wrong with getting stuff done, Liana? (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Go your hardest. There is nothing wrong with getting stuff done. The question is always reinforce this constantly at what cost to you, at what cost to others, and what's the end game here? Because in that pace is often sometimes we can get so caught up in the speed to get things done that we forget about what's the implication of this decision over there. Mm. So it's the tunnel vision kind of stuff. It can be. Yeah. It can and, be. And I think that can be what it is because you're so, I mean, it's task orientated. Yeah. Right? And sometimes you're so in pursuit of that task that you're not actually looking around and seeing, okay, how does this all fit together? And what's the grander goal, right? Rather than just the immediate 
goal? What's yeah. actually the overall objective? And yeah. So on? And it's like you hear it sometimes in organizations where you get, I don't know, say like a marketing team getting a great idea on a product and they launch the product, but they forget to tell the people at the front line about how they're going to talk to their customers about well, it. I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's an example of how it manifests. You know, so if you think about the marketing team is so keen to get their product out, yeah. but who's their customer and, and who's actually advising that customer as another branch in your division, that in your, in your organization that probably need to know. So that's about it. How do uh, we pause to think about what else do we need to do in order to and, make this successful? And, and that's funny because then, and then the finger pointing starts and it kind of spirals <laughs> downwards, right? Yeah. So it's like, well, you guys should just be ready. And yeah. Well, you guys don't tell us. Yeah, well, classic, you know, why can't you read what's in my mind is yeah. what someone yeah, exactly. <laughs> might say. Exactly. So, okay, so if you're in a coaching conversation then with someone, and they're high on task. So you'd start at that kind of broad level, at the general level about, you know, what is it with, what's going on for them at that level? What's with the pace and so on? Yeah, I might sometimes start with, you know, asking questions about what's the pace that you work at and, you know, how does it sound? What is it? What speed is it? And so like with every rapport building activity, what you're looking for are the other hooks to link you into the more specific questions that will help you bring the styles to life. So if you've got someone saying things to you, well, yeah, you know, what's going really well for me is I'm getting a lot done, but you know what? my God, it's hard to get people to take ownership for what they do. Uh You already know that there's probably, you can start linking that to different things in the profile, but you also know that this is someone who is keen on outcomes. Uh So that helps you then target your questions with what's important to them. Should go back to your original question, really, shouldn't I, on oppositional? What do you ask? Someone (laughs) high on oppositional. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So if someone's high on oppositional, and I guess this can be a challenging one too, because high on oppositional, we always say people, you know, live up to their profile, right? So yeah. someone who's high on a positional is probably going to push back on some of the feedback because by nature, that's what it is. So what are some kind of questions you can ask people to maybe challenge that or maybe, I don't know if challenge is the right word to an oppositional <laughs> person, but like to explore that with them. What are some questions you'd ask in there? Yeah, I do love this style. People who have been in accreditation with me know I have a strong affiliation with it. Oppositional is ultimately still a defense mechanism and it can be quite a crafty isolation technique. If I oppose, I can also avoid because people will stop bringing things to you ultimately um, if you continue to do it from a behavioral point of view. Uh-huh. But one of the things that I found interesting that manifests as oppositional is a degree of frustration. And so I, I might ask individuals as a warm-up what's frustrating you right now because there's usually a bit of frustration about something um, uh-huh. and it could be multiple different things. That's one question that's always seemed to be quite helpful for the individual and they can they can label it pretty quickly when they've got oppositional on their profile, I find. Yeah, right. Do, do you ever get sucked down a path of like, well, my problem is these drongos in my office don't know, you know, what's going on or whatever. They're yeah. making terrible decisions kind of stuff. Yeah. Because where do you go from there? Because that's, you know, that's like you don't want to enable that because that's shifting the blame to other people, right? That is that oppositional style. So, Well, I again, keep exploring it. Okay, what is it that's going on that that you find is unhelpful or is ineffective, keep going. What else, What would you recommend as a different way forward? Have you thought about suggesting some ideas for those individuals on how they could do it differently? Because what tends to happen if we get stuck in oppositional is we get in a spiral down very quickly uh. of being able to point out what's not right. And that's kind of a, it's not a fun place to be from a mindset point of view. Uh. It's kind of where your cynic comes out. Uh. And when you become cynical, everything looks cynical, everything kind of looks bad around yeah, you. Right. And so, again, it's continuing the thought, okay, well, what, you know, so what could they do differently? 
do you have any ideas around what could be great? And so encourage them because often the frustration, I've seen it show up in individuals who are quite clever that haven't Mm. been recognized and they're feeling frustrated by it. Mm. Maybe they haven't been listened to. That's Mm. another trigger, I think, for oppositional when you feel like you're not being heard. And so how do you get them to repackage the frustration into something that can be a recommendation, something you can actually do something with? So my questions might be about unlocking the point of frustration and turning it into an opportunity. And that's really, I mean, when we talk about the circumplex, we look at opposite styles, right? So rather than concentrating on reducing oppositional, we talk about growing, humanistic, encouraging. And with oppositional, at least thinking and behavior, people can, you know, someone comes to you with an idea and the oppositional will just be smack it down and tell them why it's wrong. The humanistic encouraging part is help them to build a better idea. Yeah. Right. It can still be, you know, sometimes like that's what I think about with the style is if someone comes into your office with a stanker of an idea and it's terrible and we can't dress it up any other way. It's just, it's not a good idea. But is it that you just kind of point out to them every flaw in their thinking and send them away? Or do you actually try and work with them yeah. to, to build a better idea? And that might be through asking them questions. Yeah. Get to the sentiment underneath it mm. and then help them reshape it potentially. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I like your statement about the sometimes it's frustrated, clever people. Because I think part of it is, you know, someone comes up with this idea and I'm going to tell you every reason why it's not going to work, you know, because you haven't thought of this, you haven't thought of that. And some of that is people trying to demonstrate their knowledge or prowess, right? Yeah. So it's kind of a bit of a demonstration. If we think about aggressive styles, it's wanting to be seen. Looking 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 a certain way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's one of those styles where... Have I, I'm just trying to think if I come across a client who, when they see oppositional, they haven't been able to articulate what it is for them. Usually people are pretty aware that it plays up in their LSI 1 and LSI 2. They, they're quite conscious of it. But, you know, the question around frustration, the other thing you might ask if you're interested to explore, you know, what's the implication of it is you might ask questions again up on that people side. You know, how are the quality of your relationships with others? Mm. Um, would you like them? to be different because there, as I said earlier, there is an isolation element to oppositional, which Mm. keeps you away from building good quality relationships with others, or it can do that. Yeah. So how do you feel about your connection with other people? might be a question you ask. And that could be interesting because I think, especially if they're like this clever person, you know, how you teaching others what you know or something, Mm. because that's playing into Mm. that. Yeah. Because, you know, I've seen, I think I've said this story on the podcast before, but a company I saw where, you know, this particular operational thing happened. There's option A and B, both kind of six of one, half a dozen of the other, both good options. And this person went to their manager and was like, I think we should do option B for these reasons. It's like, no, you idiot, of course, it's option A. And then a month later, almost the same situation, slightly different, came, oh, let's go with option A. No, you idiot, it's B. And so it was just whatever they kind of came with, it was always wrong. Suppose, yeah. Even though it didn't really make a material difference, I suppose it did at some level. And this person was an expert, right? That they were going to was an expert and they knew a lot, but they weren't teaching people why, right? They were just telling them they were wrong. Mm. So the question would be, you know, kind of almost like a legacy question. I'll say, well, how are you developing others? Yeah. Flick it up to humanistic encouraging. Yeah, that's answer, right. And how would you take it forward differently? Yeah. So, I mean, you could acknowledge definitely what 
the comments or the frustrations were and then as a build think about well, how do you how do you share or, or share that knowledge with others or how do you turn it into something that will be of benefit to the company you're working for yeah it's about repack that's about repackaging i think and reframing their thinking mm. and can that ever be situation dependent too i mean i guess that's the what's frustrating you mm. can be well you know they're trying to make these changes at work but i guess so that might be a question is this a temporary thing or is this a pattern yeah it's a pattern of mm. is this where you go to because often it is you know we, it is, yeah. we tend to have patterns of defensive dips you know the ones that we will go to under certain circumstances i know that when i'm underslept or under pressure i'm more likely to move to an oppositional uh, at home for example uh, you know like <laughs> i know that's a pattern of behavior <laughs> And so, and we will all have these these habitual moves that we use. So, definitely exploring what are the what are the triggers that put you there, so you can manage them before. Yeah, nice. Okay, well, what if we uh, move around then to the next one, which is power. Power. So, power is a lot about kind of high trust in self, low trust in others. Yeah. And sometimes how I describe it, or it's wanting to to control things, wanting to run things by self. Yeah, control. So. What are some kind of framing questions you'd use to explore that style? Very similar, actually, to your sort of thought starter there. I might ask things, people high on power, you know, what happens when something unexpected turns up that you weren't familiar with? You know, so again, if, if you've done some rapport building and let's say you're working with a leader who has a, a you know team of people reporting to him or her, you might ask a question about what happens when they bring information to you that you weren't aware of, like it's too late or something. What's your go? What's your response? Because often that's something that people high in power really don't like. Or mm. what happens when people are, are not telling you the entire truth? Mm. What happens when they sort of give you patchy bits of information but are not being very direct? So, and how does it feel when you're not entirely in control of certain things? This is just to explore the felt state of how I respond when mm. things are out of my control or the unexpected happens or, you know, because it, because you said earlier, yes, it is about control, but it's also about trust. Mm. And so I feel very uncomfortable when I'm not entirely in control. And if you show, if you demonstrate that you're not completely across things, that's a threat state for me. Mm. It's when I move into power. So that's just about exploring where do I go to under those, in those circumstances. What's your level of trust, like in others, to pick up on your comment? Mm. You know, do you trust people to, to kind of run with things and go with it? And maybe you might even ask individuals who are in power, you know, how are you going getting people to be accountable for what they need to do? Uh-huh. Are you finding that people are meeting your expectations? That might be a, a start, if you like, to explore power. There's lots of different ways you can go with that style, I think. Uh, what if someone with the trust thing, what if someone pushes back and says, well, they're just not up to it, they're not capable Right. What if they come back with that kind of It's really common. They're not capable. I had a really interesting scenario recently with with a leader who said that exact thing, followed by, and they get paid a lot of money, so is it really my job Mm. to do this? And the comment probably took me back a little bit, but what I noticed in that comment was that the lens that individual was looking at the situation was through oppositional and power together. And so their thinking, if you like, was around judgment. So when, you, when I get a, uh, an individual that says something like, well, they're not capable, it kind of gives me insight that, that they think indi- individuals are or are not. And so that's about growth and capacity again. It's up in humanistic encouraging. Do you, 
do you think people have the capability to grow? Mm. Have you seen individuals change? Mm. Have you grown and changed over time? So again, get them to connect to the idea that people can actually develop mm. and we're not fixed human beings. So it's not absolutes? Yeah. And the other thing you might ask is, I wonder what, you might also explore where there's differences in that, in his opinion. So are there other people that demonstrate different behaviours? I wonder why that is to kind of explore what are the different patterns of behaviour that or that could be influencing that or different scenarios. And I wonder what this one is, are they influencing that person as well? Because especially if it's a manager, a leader, you said in your example, if they're high in a power style, that's going to drive behaviours in people around them. And so, you know, we look at that with leadership impact and so on. But when we talked about it actually on the last podcast, when we were talking about dependency, you know, so managers can be like, well, this person always comes to me mm. wanting an answer. They obviously aren't capable. They obviously don't know. So I tell them. And it's like, you're actually building into that cycle. Yeah. Right. Because they play off each other. Because you're telling them and they might feel they have to come to you because you always want to have your say. So how are you kind of reinforcing perhaps that behavior and how can you? break that and it's not by you know telling them more <laughs> you know, yeah. it's by and it's and you'll find that if you sometimes i find that when i'm working with clients that have that exact scenario there will be a bit of discomfort in taking ownership for it because they will there's probably some individuals that i've worked with have fully believed that it's a fixed state so people are who they are mm. and it's because if you think about how some of those power oppositional styles are manifested it runs things by self. It takes control of things independently, making unilateral decisions. So these individuals are very high in terms of their ability to be decisive. Mm. It's very difficult for them to understand that someone couldn't be that way, mm. I find, with some clients. So mm. one of the, you know, in those instances, it is, it's just kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You do it more, the other, the other person continues to be dependent for moving into action. I mean, you've just got to really call it, don't you, and say, look, Noted, you've got to actually label your responsibility, part of your responsibility in it, and, and call it out. With this particular client, what we ended up doing, I know we're veering off topic here into actions, but what we ended up doing was just getting him to label it with that direct report and say, look, I'm noticing this is my role in this situation that I moved to directive with you, and I want to stop doing that as much because I want and I believe that you can achieve more. And oh. so that's about humanistic encouraging. I believe you have the ability and you're going to notice some differences in my behavior so that I can give you some space to do that and it will take some time. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Interesting one though, right? And that's a start anyway. And I guess you got to name it to tame it and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what we're doing, right? Is trying to get people to connect with it for themselves. Yeah. And connect with the why I feel the need to be in control. That's, oh. a, you know, that low trust, there's a, that, that's often manifested from experience. It's the whole kind of if you want something done right, do it yourself kind of mantra, isn't it? And it will continuously be reinforced is one of the challenges, which is why I originally wrote that delegation article because moving from high power to a, if you've kind of got a team that have become a little bit green or you've inherited a team that are a bit green, to immediately start delegating, you'll find that that will be too much of a stretch and mm. they won't deliver what you expect. Therefore, that's reinforced your need to stay in control. Well, that, that's the thing with this style or, or aggressive and passive styles playing off each other. It's yeah. a bit of a chicken and the egg thing. Yeah. It's like, well, they're not stepping up, so I have to tell Take them control. what to do. But because I tell them what to do, they're not going to step up. So it's, you've got to circuit break it somehow. You circuit break it and you need that kind of um, that midpoint in between letting go 
and holding the reins completely tight. Yeah, that's right. You can't drop them. You can't swing the other way and just be like, <laughs> yeah. well, you're all on your own now. Yeah, take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, well, what about competitive style? So this is kind of a need to to be seen as better than, yeah. to stand out and turn everything into a competition. So it's kind of to be seen and it keeps us safe. It's security because, oh, hey, I'm better than everyone else. But it's also actually the the... I guess personal expense of the style is it puts everything in terms of, or self-esteem in terms of winning and losing. You know, if I lose, then that's about me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like quite personal. Yeah. If something doesn't go right. I'm not doing well enough or I'm not. Yeah, I'm not good enough, right? Ultimately, it's kind of I'm not good enough if you're really yeah. out there. And it could go two ways. If you think about locus of control, it could go two ways. It could be if you don't win, you might blame external factors that are outside mm-hmm. of your control. The referee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, they cheated. They cheated. How <laughs> yeah. often do you hear that, right? <laughs> That's why we lost. Or you could be an active self-critic and think that there's no excuses, right? There's the external forces. There's no excuse to not winning. I must mm. win at all, at all costs. Um, mm. Rather than go to the, what did we learn? What could we try differently next time? Which would be more achievement mm. thinking. Competitive, yes, competitive, win-lose mentality. Helping individual, individuals understand. Often I find the challenge of this is not necessarily helping individuals understand it, but it's understanding the cost. Yeah, right. Because they will get it and they will hand on heart. I'm a competitive person. Uh-huh. I get, you know, yes, I want to win. Yes, I'm very athletic. It's interesting how people put sport in the mix with competitive. Always. But that's because, I mean, in popular culture, and this is the challenge with that style because that term's used all the time by super successful people who say, I'm a real competitor. Yeah. And sometimes I just wonder if it's because they don't have the language to describe something like achievement, which I think a lot of them actually are. Yeah. A lot of like top sports people actually achievement. They are. Like Federer, I would say, is achievement, for Definitely. instance. But they don't have that kind of language. So they talk about competitive and competing. And look, the thing with the style is there's nothing wrong with winning. We all want to win. That's the whole point of being in business or whatever. You want to do a good job. But it's about, is it at all costs? Is it the ends justify the means? Mm. Is it more important than anything else? And is it you know, ultimately what you put yourself worth on? Yeah, it's like a, one of my friends has a comment that she says to me around something about, you know, do you want to win the argument or do you want to have a happy relationship, which I, I'm not quite right. sure. That's kind of... That. Exactly. So it is context-driven, but really I guess what, I'm, what I would do with the competitive is, because what you're saying is very true, There are when people are talking about competitive in terms of how we mean it, the term generally versus what do we mean in a circumplex, mm. they are often talking about achievement you know, shooting for something and it get obtaining it, the goal. Mm. But when what I want individuals to do is to connect with the cost of competitive thinking. And so my question my question might point the individual towards, you know, where do you go? How do you feel when you haven't achieved what you set out to achieve? What's your go to? Mm. And so they might say something like, Well, it's not good enough. You've got to win. Mm. Okay. So it's getting to What's the dialogue underneath the black-white, the, the right-wrong? Because that's often very common in competitive thinking. It's winning, it's losing, and mm. there's no in-between. Mm. So questions to connect with that. You might 
I tend to target them specifically to the individual. So let's say you're talking to a team, an individual who works in a team, you might ask them something like, how do you feel when a peer is promoted or given a piece of work that you feel you were owed? You know, so explore some examples of where someone else has gotten something ahead of you and what's, uh, the, what's the thinking that goes on in your mind? Because uh, what you'll find with competitive is they might go to things like, well, I can't believe they got the job, they're not as good as me, you know, or they might. And so the, then the, the work is around, well, how do we package it up to direct your efforts where they make the most difference? The other thing you might explore with competitive again, because it's in that high task orientation, Potentially, if they're a new leader, and let's just say they're leading with high competitive, how are they going growing their team? Because if we're leading with competitive and we're still trying to look good and appear better than others, we might be more focused on what makes us look good versus how do we make sure others have got what they need to grow, develop and deliver. And then maybe another question around competitive, because it's constantly comparing self with others, you might ask what you know, where are your unique strengths and contributions? What are the goals that really matter to you? Where do you want to direct your efforts? Mm. What gives you joy? It's connecting them more to the internal versus looking at the external environment to assess my worthiness. Getting, I'm asking questions to return them back to the inward around what's valuable to me. Mm. And I, I think for me, one of the key differences between competitive and achievement is both are goal-focused, but what's more important, the short-term goals or the long-term goals? And I think often mm. competitive mm. gets caught up on short-term goals. I've got to win this game. I've got to win this argument, right? So it's like, mm. it's like your example from before. Do you want to win the argument or do you want a happy relationship? And it's not about avoiding conflict or whatever, but it's having that longer-term goal of what's really important here, Yeah. right? And this argument about whatever it is, which electricity provider to sign up to, or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. It's a bad example. <laughs> whatever it is, though. <laughs> Let is, me go through the files of arguments I've had with my partner. I'm just yeah, yeah, scanning yeah. through them now. <laughs> that's a whole different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it. And, and, and often you look back at some of those arguments and they're like, oh, it's ridiculous. It doesn't matter. Right, yeah. it doesn't matter, but you get so caught up in winning the point. And I guess there's kind of a there's a meta thing going on where I guess there's you know in a competitive mindset you're kind of jockeying for position or something, right? It's what's going on under that argument because that specific argument doesn't matter, but you're trying to kind of prove something. Prove something. Yeah, yeah. it's it's so true. I've seen it play out from a behavioural point of view. I saw it play out. I know um, I had a client who had quite a blind spot on the competitive approval bow tie. And what was sort of manifesting in this discussion was people were saying things about their felt experience, right? They were sort of saying, you know, when this happens in our team sessions, it causes me to feel X, Y, Z, you know, not listened to or not heard. The individual was so caught up in winning the point that in this instance, he didn't hear what was going on for that individual. So kept fighting and disagreeing because it was threatening the sense of right versus wrong. And so How do you unpack the costs of that binary thinking? Because in that moment, he was driving a wedge between himself and his peers Uh. because it was so preoccupied with being right that listening wasn't happening. Uh. And I think that's how do you, you know, what's when we don't 
when we're so focused on and preoccupied with thinking of being right and proving ourselves, we stop listening to, we can, we can stop tuning into and listening to the people around us, what's really going on, which kind of plays to your point around what's the end goal here. Mm. It's challenging though, because I think people in that style genuinely think they are right. Yeah. Like I genuinely believe I am right. And so I, I can't just like let something that I genuinely believe is incorrect kind of go past, you know, like that's the challenge, mm. you know, I genuinely, like it's not necessarily like I'm just going to try and beat this person but they honestly believe that this is the right and wrong way of doing things and yeah. that this is what it should be and then it becomes a question of how do you package that up I suppose so you know that's it's a really good point because so then it becomes around motivation what's motivating me in this moment am I motivated by being right or am I motivated by sharing what I believe is true and contributing to our common goal Mm. So the motivation, you need to tune into what's my motivation in this moment. Mm. Is it being right for being right's sake or is it really believing I have a, a contribution that's important? Mm. Okay. So one's, one, one could be defensive, one's threatening my sense of self-worth and one is about building yeah, something. Right. So it's asking some questions around that, what's driving that. Yeah, what's my motivation in this moment? Yeah, beautiful. Mm. All right, what about the perfectionistic style? So... The style can often be about the thing I find interesting about the perfectionistic style is it's not necessarily being perfect. It's appearing perfect. Yes. And there's a big difference between those two because people will say, I mean, it's like the, it's just like the competitive style in that people wear it as a badge of honor, right? Well, I, things need to be perfect. Like that's not a bad thing. And they're essentially saying that they are perfect, right? It's what they're trying to say. Yeah. It's it. Such a, again, another style that's so common, like you're perfectionistic in approval because they're so up near the satisfaction areas. Mm. You're 100% right when it's high. I notice the individuals, there's a preoccupation with wanting to appear perfect. Mm. And so that creates a lot of tension when you're faced with situations where you, you know, under pressure or you might have to be deemed the expert. So that creates tension, getting it right or appearing like you're, you're in control. And it can also be very, very active in a critic, right? So it's the unrealistic goals, unkind to self when those aren't reached, cycle, constant cycle. Uh, Whole range of different questions you could ask someone high on perfectionistic. I mean, you can kind of go so wide, go narrow. You know, the, the fairly typical ones because they correlate to stress. You know, how do you, what do you do to switch off or are you able to switch off? How do you go at letting go? What do you do for fun? It's a question I might ask someone who's high perfectionistic, at which point they might find that very difficult to answer because everything's about doing something really well. Fun doesn't come into the equation right. of being perfect. We don't have time for fun, Leah. Yeah. What gives you joy? Just to get them to reconnect with this idea that you don't have to be brilliant at things or perfect at things. You can do things for joy. So one of the, I've had a client years ago who was a lawyer and one of the actions she ended up landing on was she was going to do art she was self-confessed non-creative, didn't think she was very good at drawing or painting. So she went to do a course that she did every I know, Tuesday night or something weekly. And she did it purposefully to enjoy it, not to be good at it, uh, to perfect it, yeah. which was really hard. But what it did was teach her that it's okay just to do things for fun. And she then gained benefit from doing that. So that's almost like... That's almost like the exposure therapy thing yeah. that we talked about last time, right? Is, Just give it a go. Because that's a low stakes way of doing it, right? Go to the painting class because it doesn't matter, right? Yeah. If, you, if you're not a great painter or whatever. And, but and, you're building that 
pathway in the brain or whatever it is that you know opens up those possibilities for that being okay. Yeah, you can do things just for fun. You might then you get other questions that you might get more targeted on around how do you respond when things aren't done right up to your standard? How do you feel? What's your typical response to explore? Uh, what's what's your go to? If it's a leader high on perfectionistic, you might explore their capacity to think strategically. You know, uh, are you creating the space to kind of lead the business and think long term? Because if you are high on perfectionistic, you might find that you're getting caught up in the detail quite a lot. Swooping down. Yeah, the swoop. The swoop is very common in perfectionistic. Uh, one thing that I find interesting about the perfectionistic style, and you touched on it already, was that inner critic voice. Mm-hmm. So perfectionist, by the nature of it, it's like you need to be perfect and you expect yourself to be perfect and nobody's perfect, <laughs> let's be honest. And so the inner critic voice can be quite harsh mm-hmm. in the style. And I think from what I've seen is that revealing that is quite powerful for mm-hmm. people because it's in their head all day, Yeah, right, talking to themselves. So yeah, what does it sound like? So, yeah, exactly. So is, are there questions like that that yeah. you use to surface that? Yeah. What do you say to yourself when uh, you could use any – this is about getting pointed examples that are relevant to them when you make a mistake or when, like, let's just say, I don't know, there might be a parent that had a bad day parenting and they might have snapped. What do you say to yourself after the moment that you did that? What's uh, the dialogue? That's so definitely surfacing what's that internal dialogue. I often find with a lot of people who are sitting on a – let's just use aggressive defensive for an example – at that. That task orientation is an aggressive relationship with self. So if you can imagine the inner child or the inner person kind of pointing and waving their finger at you saying, not good enough, do better, Mm. faster, more effective, Mm. pull your socks up, come on, carry on, get it done. So it's sort of when is enough enough or it's never enough. Yeah, when is enough enough that, you know, and that's another really good question. But what I find is that if that have never thought about that inner dialogue, because remember that LSI one is like turning the volume up on that inner voice and putting it in front of you in a coloured format. If you've never given that thought before, that's just how you talk to yourself. So yeah. it can be helpful to surface, just say it out loud. What does it sound like, you know, when you don't hit the mark you were expecting you, you know, expecting to? Uh. Would you say this to your loved ones? Uh. Is this a voice you would use? Uh. What is that, as they're saying it out loud or writing it down, what does that actually encourage you to do? And some of them will say, well, it encourages me to keep on going. But what's the cost again? What's the cost of uh. talking to yourself like this long term? I think that's a really interesting question. The, you know, would you say this to your friend, your best friend or something who came to you with a problem? Would you use that same voice with them? Yeah. And if not, why are you using it with yourself? And one thing you can do with the LSI report is actually read the items. It's right? a great technique. So, yeah. so if I've said I'm always or often, you know, these items, literally read them out mm. or get or the coach can read them out to the person. Yeah. Because that's actually, that is essentially what you're saying to yourself. And when you hear it out loud, it's different. I think it's different than when it's in your own head because you excuse it in your own head. Yeah. When you hear it out loud, you're like, oh, that's pretty awful. Like, why do I say that to myself? Yeah. You can dull it down a little bit when it's in your head. It's kind of like it's a whisper. You can't quite make it out, but uh, it's there constantly. Uh, uh. Yeah. The, again, I think we've spoken about this in previous podcasts. The aggressive defensive style is a very harsh way, a rela- very harsh relationship with self, but it can present 
very guarded and some people can be quite intimidated by it. You can find yourself intimidated by it because it's designed as it's still a defensive technique to keep people away. Mm. If you're thinking generally when you're looking at the cluster, I was just thinking as we were talking, there is definitely an active inner critic that you can explore in your questioning. So what do you say to yourself? The other thing is around the pace. I think we spoke about earlier, listening mm. skills, mm. taking the time to consider options. You know, how do you go about taking the time to consider options? weigh up different perspectives. These are generally questions you might ask as well in sort of a collective version when you're looking at high task profiles. Fantastic. Yeah, I think that's... That does us. That does us, yep. Well, those are some good good questions and we'll write that up in the blog so there'll be a link to it in the show notes of this podcast. So if you want to kind of review those questions because I know they should have been furiously taking notes while we've been talking, you can go to the website so there'll be a link in, in the podcast notes so go there and we'll, we'll list all those questions down for you so you can use those. Otherwise, thanks for your time, Liana. Thanks, Dom. It was fun. And what we might do on the next one is look at people who are low in the constructive styles. And so some questions prompting some of those. Great. See you then. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Bites. If you enjoy the show, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, leave us a review. It helps other people to find the show. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, email podcast at human-synergistics.com.au. We'd love to answer it. Thanks for being part of our amazing community. We can only do it together with yourself. So long for now.